The past two Sundays we have studied the fifth and sixth trumpets of the first and second woes in which the consequences of the breaking the covenant are revealed in terms of demonic assaults. The fifth trumpet, we have demonic beings that are seen as coming from the abyss under their king, the destroyer, Abaddon in Hebrew or Apollyon in Greek. And then last week, the sixth trumpet, which four angels who had been bound are, are unbound near the river Euphrates and they release a mounted force of twice ten thousands time tens, times ten thousand. Both groups, the fifth and the sixth trumpets, are described in terrifying terms so as to provoke the horror that they represent. And that's why they're known as the first and second woes. All things being equal, we're now ready for the seventh trumpet. We've seen Six, now it's time for the seventh. But before we get to the seventh trumpet, the third woe, we have a break that we find here in chapters uh, 10 and part of 11. And this shouldn't surprise us, because in the first cycle, the seven seals, we are told of the six seals, you know, first the first four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Then we have the fifth and sixth, which describes sort of a decreation, the world being torn down, if you wish People cry on the mountains and rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And at the end of this sixth seal, we read, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And the question may have arisen, what about God's people? If all of these terrible things are going to happen, what will happen to Christians? What will happen to God's people? Will they be subjected to the horrors described in the six seals. But more importantly, how will they fare in the face of the wrath of him who sits on the throne of the Lamb? How will they stand in the day of God's wrath? And so, as a result, we have chapter 7, which is an interruption between the sixth and the seventh seals. And what we find in chapter 7, if you remember, is a description of God's people. Numbered and numberless, that is the 144,000, and a great multitude that no one could count, sealed, God's people here on earth, God's people in heaven, all of whom are worshiping God. And regarding those who are in the presence of God in heaven, we read, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is, in the face of the wrath of him who sits on the throne, and the wrath of the Lamb, God's people will be preserved. God will spread his tent over them. The Lamb will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. That's the first cycle. Now we come to the second cycle, which are the seven trumpets. We are told thus far of the six trumpets. The first four form a unit. They describe the plagues that fell on Egypt and Babylon as that which will come on Israel. The fifth and sixth, the demonic assaults that I've just mentioned. 
the question I think would then arise again. How will God's people fare in the face of these judgments? You know, the plagues, you know, that occurred, the things that are described in the seals, those are more physical. But here we are talking about spiritual assault, demonic hordes that are coming against Israel. What will happen to God's people? What we find are chapters 10 and 11, in which John sees a series of visions which have the same theme as what we saw in chapter 7. And that is that God will protect his people in the midst of suffering. And so these chapters are intended, I think, as encouragement and as comfort and as assurance to God's people. We will look at it in different sections today. Let's begin with the first four verses here in chapter 11, uh, in which John sees a mighty angel. Verse 1, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head, His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. After the horrors of the fifth and sixth trumpets, John sees another mighty angel coming down from heaven. This is the second time that we have seen a mighty angel. The first one was in chapter 5, when a mighty angel proclaims that there is no one worthy to open the seals, to open the scroll. The connection, I think, is significant because this second mighty angel has that scroll in his hand. And the scroll has now been opened. In chapter 5, it was sealed. It had seven seals and no one could open it. Now we see the angel with the scroll in his hand and it has been opened. But the question has been asked, who is this mighty angel? Some have suggested, and I think I agree with them, that this mighty angel is Jesus Christ himself. And certainly from the description given, one could make a case that this is what John wants us to understand. Now, I think it's important as we go through this description to understand that it isn't merely a visual symbolism that is given. It isn't simply that we should look at it visually, but also understand the implications as it is tied or as they are tied to the Old Testament. So, first of all, we are told that this mighty angel is robed in a cloud. Well, a cloud in the Old Testament is seen as representing the presence of God. And let me read to you several passages. First of all, from Exodus 40. This is toward the end of the book of Exodus, when the tabernacle is set up for the first time. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites... Whenever the cloud lifted up above, from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. And so the cloud with the tabernacle represents the presence of God. In Leviticus, God gives Moses instructions. Okay, you're to tell Aaron, the high priest, this is what he's supposed to do. That he is not to come into the most holy place whenever he chooses behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, God tells him. Why? 
because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover, over the mercy seat. So when we read of the mighty angel clothed with a cloud, immediately I think our thought should be of the glory of God as we see it in the Old Testament. Secondly, we are told that there is a rainbow above his head, and we've seen a rainbow already in chapter 4, that there is a rainbow resembling an emerald encircling the throne of God. But we have to ask ourselves, what does the rainbow symbolize? And here we go back to the book of Genesis and remember how God set a bow in the sky as a sign of his covenant to Noah. Having destroyed the whole earth by judgment or in judgment by a flood, God promises not to do so again. Then we are told that his face was like the sun. And this we found in chapter 1 when John first sees uh, Christ, that his face was shining like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. A similar description is given in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration, that Jesus' face shone like the sun. But again, we need to be careful that we don't think, oh, he had a shiny face. You know, it was, it was bright. I think there's much more to it than that. In the Old Testament, the sun is used to describe the glory of God particularly with regard to judgment. Let me read to you from the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Surely the day is coming. This is the day of the Lord. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day is coming, will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Their sun is S-U-N, not S-O-N. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. And so this is more than mere brilliance. This is the sun of righteousness. This is speaking of God coming in judgment. And then we are told that his legs were like fiery pillars. The pillar of fire we know from the book of Exodus that in the daytime there was a cloud that Israel would follow and at night you couldn't see a cloud so it was a pillar of fire, a fiery pillar. Here the image has changed a bit. It's not something in the sky. We have two pillars that are the legs of this mighty angel. But I think the intent is clear. This angel represents the very presence of God himself. And so I think we can safely conclude that this mighty angel is the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, we can make an additional argument when we get to chapter 11. He will talk to John about my witnesses. The two witnesses, he will say, these are my witnesses, which would indicate that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then why doesn't John say so? Why does he refer to Jesus as a mighty angel? Well, if you remember, the language that is used in the book of Revelation is the language of the Old Testament. And time and time again in the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus appears as an angel. In fact, with some exceptions, almost every time that we see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that's Jesus. What we call the pre-incarnate Christ. Before he was born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus appears in the Old Testament as an angel. And... Remember, the book of Revelation is about those who have broken the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the judgments that are coming. And so the language is that of the Old Testament. Jesus is seen as a mighty angel. 
We are told that he is holding a little scroll in his hand, which is open. We will look at this more in a minute. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. The impression here, I think, is twofold. The one is he must be immense. He must be huge to be able to put one foot on the sea and one on the land. I think more than that, it's simply speaking that he is Lord of all creation, earth and sea. I think this is what is intended. Then we are told he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And again, we need to be careful that we're just not thinking, oh, that it must have really, really been loud. Um, I remember, I think I was 16 years old. My parents uh, took us to Chicago and it was November, I think. And so we went to the, the Brookfield Zoo and because of the weather, it was rather cold. The animals were indoors, and so we got to go indoors and see lions and tigers and all these things. And I remember that down at the end, there was this one lion that just kept roaring. And the, it, it felt, you could feel, you know how people go by when their radios are cranked? I mean, that you could feel the roar of the lion. But I don't think that's what John is getting at. I, I think certainly it's loud, he's already told us that. But when we think of Jesus and we think of a lion, I think we're taken back to chapter 5 when we, we are told he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So yes, it is loud, but this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah from the tribe of Judah. And so he shouts like the roar of a lion. The voices of the seven thunders spoke, and when they spoke, John was about to write down what they said. But he hears a voice from heaven saying, stop. Don't write down, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. That is, John is instructed not to write down what he has heard. As one author has noted, this sudden secrecy seems strange in a book given to reveal to God's servants what must occur. You could make the case that what these seven thunders said was for John and for John alone. But I think it's worth noting that God tells that God, God has John include this in his revelation. In other words, John, I want you to tell the people that there are things that you're not going to tell them. I want you to tell them that you heard things that you did not write down. That is, God wants the church to know, he wants us to know, that there are things, and as one author puts it, many things actually, that God has no intention of telling us beforehand. The book of Revelation doesn't tell us everything that is going to happen. It tells us the things that God wants us to know. There are many things that God has not revealed to us. That's how we are supposed to live our lives, trusting him. Paul in Second uh, Corinthians talks about the fact that he went to heaven and he saw things, he said, which are not lawful for someone to write down. I'm, I'm not allowed to tell you. I can't tell you the things that I saw. And I think for us that's rather disturbing because we want to know. You know, we're not going to do anything about it. We're just, we're just curious. We want to know. No. God says, don't write it down. These are not things for my people to hear. It is interesting, though, that if you read various commentaries, uh, many of them speculate on what the seven thunders were about. Well, why are you speculating? God already said, don't write it down. 
you know, they don't need to know. So we don't need to know. But we know that we don't need to know. And that, I think, should encourage us. Now we continue. What is this mighty angel to do and what does he do with regard to the Apostle John? Verses 5, 6, and 7 here in Revelation chapter 10. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever who created the heavens and all that is in them and the earth and all that is in it and the sea and all that is in it and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. The mighty angel has his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and he raises his right hand to heaven. It is the position of taking an oath. Even in our culture, we are familiar with this, that someone would raise their hand to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That is, they take an oath. The reason that this, the reason one raises one's hand, at least originally, as we see it in Scripture, is to invoke God as witness. That is to say, there is someone above me, someone higher than me, and I invoke God's name. So help me God. You know, God is above me, and let God be the one to enforce this commitment. I have sworn to tell the truth and God knows whether or not I am. Here the angel raises his hand to him and God is described as him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it. That is to the eternal creator God. Now some people might argue, oh wait a minute, Damon, uh, if this angel is swearing an oath to God, then it must not be Jesus. Because Jesus is God, he wouldn't need to swear an oath uh, to God you know, who sits on the throne. But I would simply remind you, and if you aren't familiar with it, to go to the book of Hebrews chapter 6, in which it talks about God swearing an oath to Abraham. Let me just read to you. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater than himself to swear by, he swore by himself, saying... I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Men swear by someone greater than themselves. And, that, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. That is, when we raise our hand, we're saying there's someone greater than us, that is God over us. Who does God swear by? There's no one greater than God. He swears by himself. And so when we see the mighty angels swearing by God, this is Christ. I mean, there's no problem. There shouldn't be any conflict that he is swearing by God. And what is the oath? What is it that he swears? There will be no more delay. This is what the mighty angel tells us. That is, in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished. This is the second time in this passage that something is being kept from us, or it would seem to be. You know, first of all, the seven thunders, we're not allowed to know what that is. And now we're told about a mystery that is about to be accomplished. Um, but we need to remember that mystery in the Bible is not mystery as we think of it in the modern world, something that is mysterious. Rather, mystery in the Bible is something that was concealed, it was a secret, and now it is revealed. So mystery is, in fact, revelation. It is revealed. It used to be a secret, 
It is no longer a secret. If it were still a secret, it would be called a secret. But it is called a mystery because now it has been revealed. And what is this revelation? What is this mystery that has been revealed? Well, listen to what Paul writes to the Ephesians. In reading this then, he says to the Ephesians, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. In other words, it used to be a secret. Now it has been revealed. It was not revealed to them. Now it has been revealed. What is the mystery, Paul? This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. What is the great mystery? That Gentiles are now brought into Israel. They are now part of the people of God. God has a people. Judgment is coming against Israel. They broke the old covenant, but there is a new covenant which will bring Jews and Gentiles together into one body. The mystery is that believing Jews and Gentiles are united into one church. Even in what Emily read to us today from Romans chapter 4, Paul tries to make the point. It isn't just about the circumcision. It's the uncircumcision as well. And it's not either or, it's faith. That both Jews and Gentiles are to come by faith in Christ. And it is possible because of the work of Christ. Listen again to what Paul writes, and this is to the Romans near the end of his epistle. It is, if you were sort of a, a doxology, a benediction. Now to him who is able to, to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. In other words, Old Testament prophets didn't know this. This was a mystery, but now it has been revealed. And what is it? That all nations, Jews and Gentiles, might believe and obey him. And you know what? The oath has been kept. The gospel is being preached and people from all nations have come to faith in Christ. But what is this thing that he's holding in his hand? Look, if you would, at verses 8 through 11. Then the voice I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. We were told in verse number two that this mighty angel had a little scroll in his hand. And now we return to the matter of the scroll. A voice from heaven tells him to go over and take the scroll. John goes over to this mighty angel and asks him to give him the little scroll. The angel does, but he gives him instructions. Take it and eat it. 
which on the face of it sounds rather strange. I mean, scrolls are not to be eaten, scrolls are to be read. What is this all about? Well, John does, in fact, take the scroll and eat it as he is instructed. Again, to those who know the Old Testament, they're like, oh, I get this. I've, I've heard this, this before. In the case of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 2, Ezekiel is commissioned to be a prophet. But before the commission can happen, he is given a scroll to eat. Let me read to you. God is speaking to him. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. So like John, it is an open scroll. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. And so he, Ezekiel, as with John, has given instructions, eat this scroll, and it tasted sweet as honey in their mouths. But with John, he was told beforehand, and indeed it happened, by the time it got to his stomach, it turned his stomach sour. Now let's talk about this scroll a bit, some things to note. First of all, I think the fact of eating the scroll means internalizing it. And for us, we're far too modern, far too scientific. We're like, well, no, if you eat something, you're not internalizing, you're eating it. You know, to internalize it needs to go into your brain. You know, you need to read it and it needs to be a mental process. For us, it's all about the mental process. Read the Old Testament. I mean, the focus is not even so much on the heart or the mind, but on the stomach. I mean, this is where you're at. So he's to take the message in. He is to internalize it before he gives it to others. Secondly, he is commissioned. This is part of his commissioning. In other words, you must eat this scroll and then you are to prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. By the way, if that language sounds familiar, it is very similar to what we find in chapter 7. The great multitude, John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, language, and people, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. So the prophecy, I think, has to do with the church. It has to do with the kingdom of God, those who are the people of God. But what is on the scroll? What are the contents of the scroll? Well, if you stop and think a minute, from chapter 5, you have a scroll with seven seals. The The seven seals are opened and they speak of judgment. And now the scroll is open. I think the scroll is the book of Revelation itself, or certainly parts of it. God saying, these are the judgments that I'm going to bring on those who have broken my covenant. So he is actually internalizing the prophecies that he is now going to write down in what we call the book of Revelation. What about the taste of the scroll? It's really interesting. We are told that it is sweet in the mouth, but sour in the stomach. I think in modern terms we would say it is bittersweet. And how is it bittersweet? I mean, 
what is intended here? I think there are a couple ways to view this. First of all, John is writing about the victory of the church and the kingdom of God. If, if you sneak a peek ahead to the next chapter, chapter 11, verse number 15, um, we have people worshiping and they're saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Glorious things are going to happen. The kingdom of God has come. It will be victorious. But you know what? In order for the kingdom of God to be victorious, someone is going to have to lose. Someone is going to have to be judged. Someone is going to have to be destroyed. One writer puts it this way. Salvation and judgment are two aspects of the same event. We see it in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. For some, it is a day of deliverance. For others, it is a day of judgment. In that sense, it is bittersweet. It tastes sweet in the mouth, but when it gets inside you, it turns sour. So John could rejoice in the victory of the church. At the same time, it, would, it must have been a gut-wrenching experience for him to know of the horrible things that were going to happen. Jerusalem, as best we can tell, it is his hometown. Um, a place he's familiar with. Um, he's actually from Galilee, but very familiar with the city of Jerusalem. It's going to be destroyed. The temple, about which John knew quite a bit, is going to be burned to the ground. It's going to be torn down and burned. Hundreds and thousands of his countrymen are either going to be tortured, they're going to starve to death, they're going to be murdered, or they're going to be sold into slavery. That's not sweet. The sweetness is what God will do for his people. The bitterness is what will happen to his enemies. The Old Testament prophets ex experience the same emotional conflict. Speaking of judgment and deliverance. I mentioned Habakkuk last week, how that he cried out to God, you've got to do something about these wicked people. And God says, okay, I'm going to send the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk is like, no, you can't do that. You, know, you want judgment, but you don't want that much judgment. This may be getting a bit ahead of the story, but for me, this sort of reinforces something. John is not writing about the Roman Empire. He's not writing about something that is going to happen in the future. He's writing about what will happen to his people. And thus, it is sour in his stomach. I think it is sweetness because of God's promises. God will keep his people in the face of judgment, whether it be physical destruction or spiritual assault by demonic forces. God will keep his people counted and countless. If we had more time, I was, in fact, I had planned to go on into chapter 11 because if you look at the first two verses of chapter 11, John is told to count the people of God. Count those who are worshiping God. God will keep his people. Paul tells us nothing will separate us from the love of God. And what sweetness that is to hear. But how bitterness it is, or what, how bitter it is to know that others will be destroyed. 
I remember years ago, in fact, I think it might have been my first or second year here in California, I was visiting someone and I was introduced to a couple women and they were Christians and they were surprised they found out I was a Christian and they said, have you heard about so-and-so? He made a prophecy. I said, no, actually, I haven't. Um, He said, yes, he made a prophecy that the whole state of California was going to fall into the Pacific Ocean. And then they said, isn't that wonderful? And I thought, actually, no, I, I don't think that's wonderful. Um, of course, I have to confess, I was thinking about myself. I don't want to fall off into the Pacific Ocean. But think of the thousands, the millions of people who would be killed if the state of California fell into the ocean. Perhaps they were rejoicing that a word had come from God. And so they were rejoicing that the prophetic word was still alive. Uh, by the way, the man was wrong, and so he was a false prophet. But maybe they were rejoicing that something like that had come about. But shouldn't there be a sourness in the stomach? Not simply sweetness in the mouth that God keeps his promises, but a bitterness that people are going to be judged. People are going to be cast into hell. It isn't all good. There is darkness as well. The Lord willing, next week we will look at the measuring of God's people and then we will look at the two witnesses that John tells us about. Because one of the things we find in this interruption, unlike the interruption in chapter 7, this interruption tells us that God's people will face difficulties. It isn't all going to be pleasant. But God will preserve his people. Let's wrap this up with just some things to remind you of. First of all, it is not for us to know everything. We should be content with what God has revealed to us. We should spend our time studying what God has revealed and putting it into practice. I've always been amazed, I think as a pastor, how that people are curious about the strangest thing. But the things that they need to know, they, they don't really want to be bothered. They, they want to know some esoteric thing. No, what we need to know is here. We should study it and then put it into practice. I think in many ways we can learn from the Old Testament saints. You know what? If somehow we could go back in time, which we can't, but if we could go back in time to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament times, We know so much more than they ever knew because we know about Jesus coming and we know about the Virgin Mary and his virgin birth. And we know about his teaching and his healing and then his being betrayed and being crucified and resurrected. We know so much. They don't. They did not know. And yet they were faithful to God. They were obedient to the light they had been given. We need to follow their example. Secondly, the sweetness of God's keeping his people. God does keep his people. Not always from difficulty. Not even from death, as we've seen earlier in the book of Revelation. God keeps us from something far, far worse. And that is his wrath. And so we have chapter 7. We have chapters 10 and 11. 
to sort of reassure us that in the midst of hearing of all this horrible destruction that will come, God says, I will keep my people. And that should be sweetness to us. But at the same time, and lastly, the bitterness, the sourness of God's judgment on others, which we should grieve and mourn over. This is not mere academics. This isn't mere intellectual information. Oh, yes, those who are not God's people, yes, um, they're going to be judged, and then they're going to be cast into hell. As though it's some, some bit of information. Again, we can learn from the Old Testament, from Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who wept over his people. Jeremiah didn't say, I know what's going to happen to you guys, and it's not good. No, he wept over his people because he knew what was coming. As Jesus approached Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Luke tells us, he saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only know on, had known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus wept knowing what was going to happen to Jerusalem. Can we do anything less? When we hear of God's judgments, not only against Israel, but God's judgments in the future, We shouldn't. We're going to be okay. It's not going to touch us. I think we should grieve and mourn over those who will be destroyed. Some of them will be people that we know and hold dear. Sweet in the mouth, but bitter in the stomach. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have included chapter 10 in Revelation to reassure us that in the midst of assault, even of terrible dimension of demonic hordes, you will preserve your people. And how sweet it is to know that you love us and you will keep us. You will protect us from your wrath. But how hard, how sour, how bitter it is to know that others will experience your wrath. Others will be destroyed. Make our hearts tender, I pray. May we not think only of our own deliverance, but weep and mourn and pray for those around us, those dear to us, those we work with, our neighbors. that you might reach out in your grace and mercy and save them as well. I thank you for this opportunity we've had today to worship you. It's my prayer that you have been glorified in what we've done this day. Go with us as we leave this place, I pray in Jesus' name. Just stand, please, as we sing the doxology together.
Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.